From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, leading a denomination. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with George O. Wood, Chairman of the World Assemblies of God Fellowship. Today's conversation is brought to you by The Clarion Project, leading documentary makers and producers of Faith Keepers, which focuses on Christian persecution in the Middle East. Faith Keepers gives face and voice to the humanitarian crisis and genocide affecting millions in the Middle East as a result of religious and ethnic persecution. The film is a testament to the stories of the persecuted and an inspiring portrait of the human spirit. More at faithkeepers.clarionproject.org. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with George Wood. And it's fun to have George Wood on today. He's a longtime friend, and I deeply respect him and his ministry. George served as the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God for 10 years, just recently stepping down from that role. And he continues to serve as chairman of the World Assemblies of God Fellowship, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. George grew up as a missionary pastor's kid. He's held many different ministry roles, including a college director of student life, a pastor, author of several books, and he served as general secretary of the Assemblies of God for 14 years before his 10 years as general superintendent. After his children left home, George pursued a law degree and is a member of the California State Bar. And he also holds degrees from Evangelion University in Springfield, Missouri, and Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. George, thank you for joining us. It's a joy to talk with you, Leith. Okay, so I gave a little bit of your background, your bio in the introduction there, but how do you describe your path to becoming the leader of a denomination? Because there aren't many people that take that path. It's kind of unique. Well, it's amazing how the Lord threads all of the aspects of your uh, life experience and training together. Um, being a missionary kid in China and then being uh, uh, the son of my, uh, what I call migrant pastors in the in small churches in the Assemblies of God, uh, uh, getting a chance to uh, be on the faculty at uh, our schools uh, to have the academic training that I did to be a pastor of a church that grew significantly. Uh, just all those threads uh, came together in the most unlikely way. I, of the twelve uh, pre, of the twelve general superintendents, some is God of which I was the twelfth. I was uh, the only one uh, that probably had the particular path uh, to get there that that I had. But God uses people at different seasons, and that was my season, I guess. Well, of your 12, I didn't know them all, but I have known a lot of them really well and have especially appreciated the amazing leadership that you've given. When you were first elected as General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God, you listed five core values for your term. So what are those? I felt it was really important right from the get-go to focus on what we were going to do. And so I put out a little book that has gone widely and, in fact, was sent to all of our credential ministers and a lot of our lay people uh, also accessed it. It was called simply called Core Values. Uh, the, it really is the DNA of the Assemblies of God, uh, passionately proclaim Jesus, uh, strategically invest in the next generation, vigorously plant new churches and revitalize existing ones, uh, skillfully resource the fellowship uh, from the national office, and uh, fervently pray. 
kind of figured if we could do uh, those five things well, we uh, pretty much uh, got about everything we needed to do. All right, this is going to seem like a really silly question, but um, you know Moses had ten commandments and Jesus had twelve disciples, and you came up with five. So how did you come up with five? Uh, well, you know, I uh, I didn't expect to be elected general superintendent, quite frankly. And so when I was elected, I had about a six months, or, I mean, a, a sixty day uh, a period of transition before I would assume office. So I got together with uh, several of uh, my very closest friends and just talked about what it what it meant to be a summons of God uh, since I was uh, 66 when I would assume office. Uh, I, uh, I, I realized that there were many thinking I was probably just a transitional superintendent. Uh, I felt uh, that that could that might be the case, but if it wasn't, I needed to lay out an agenda. And uh, so uh, going back and forth uh, with them and uh, I, I just really was able to identify these areas that I wanted to focus on. And so for 10 years, we really focused on those areas. Okay, this is an amazing list. So let's translate that into advice that you might give to other denominational leaders, but not just to denominational leaders, but to other leaders, whether it's a pastor of a church or somebody in a ministry, head of a ministry or an organization. Um, what do you advise them when it comes to setting values or establishing goals? Well, in the position that I held, it was a delicate dance between initiative and response. There's just a lot of things that came my way that I needed to respond to, uh, problems, conflicts, all kinds of issues, but I didn't want to be overwhelmed by them. I wanted to be driving an agenda. And I think it's an important, for, it's very important for leaders to have an agenda of what they want to accomplish. I never wanted to hold an office just to hold the office and have the title. I wanted to get something done with it. And so I think it's really critical that people that serve in leadership uh, set out exactly what they intend to do and then work like crazy to get it done. Every year for many years, you and I, along with other NA denominational leaders, have, have gathered to share concerns and encourage one another. So we have this 24-hour no-agenda retreat, and many of our denominational leaders, and that's the one fixed date they sort of establish for the year to make sure that they're there. But there's enormous difference between the Assemblies of God with uh, about some 13,000, some churches, and other denominations that are of different sizes. But th there was a commonality often. So how would you describe what the common challenges are for denominational executives, independent of size or tradition or theology? Well, I, I found in, in meeting with the group, and by the way, that's one of the meetings I'm really going to miss uh, every year uh, now that I'm no longer the denominational leader. But uh, you know, we we face the challenges of uh, of church growth. We we face the challenges of declining churches, of needing to plant churches, of how to relate to millennials, of how to respond to criticism, uh, of um, how to engage in this digital age, uh, and all the personal issues that uh, that come with leadership, which sometimes can be a very lonely post because. There are things you deal with as a leader that uh, other uh, other people in your organization may not be aware of or don't need to be aware of. And so that, that meeting provided an opportunity for us to sit around in a circle under your leadership and just talk without a kind of a pre-programmed agenda and share what was going on. I found it very 
wonderfully refreshing in that I was able to build relationships um, with uh, other leaders, but also to hear their heart and what was happening and discovering that whether their denomination was small or large, uh, we, we had a lot of the same issues. We had, uh, even within smaller organizations, we had what I'd call tribalism. That is, uh, the Assemblies of God is, is not monolithic. It's composed of a lot of different interest groups uh, who are united by mission and doctrine and sometimes not much else. So uh, to have a chance to just openly share was uh, very, uh, very rewarding and refreshing for me personally. That's an interesting term, lonely post, to head up a denomination. So what are some of the other challenges? What's the hard part, the difficult part about leading a denomination? I think uh, think a uh, way I'd have to describe it, uh, I believe it was Eisenhower who said this. I could be wrong on this, but he said that uh, leadership is like pushing a noodle forward, a wet noodle forward in a straight line. And... Mm -hmm. When you're when you're dealing with a large organization, it doesn't move quickly, and um, and so I think the issue always for me was how to calibrate uh, going forward in in terms of things that I wanted to do. For example, uh, we needed to really consolidate our three schools in Springfield into one that had been tried over the course of a number of years without success. So how do you how do you go about seeing that happen? Because uh, it needed to happen. It was uh, it was just uh, time, and there were other issues as well that that uh, in, including the internal functioning of our national office. We have a we have a publishing house, but with the digital age, uh, print um, resources are diminishing, and so we had basically a fire uh, brewing in terms of the viability of the publishing house and its relationship with the various ministry departments that we had. How do we downsize without uh, without overly rocking the boat, so to speak? Uh, we went, we you know, in the course of my 10 years, we, uh, we reduced the workforce by over 300 people, but it was all done gradually. But to, to, to not move too fast, not move too slow, to just kind of keep keep moving forward and trying to get to where you need to go. That was, that was really critical. Yeah. When you say that uh, denominations or, or the church doesn't always change quickly or easily, there's a danger to that, but there's a good side to that too, because if um, the church changed too quickly and precipitously, there'll be a downside. But aside from the downsides, um, what are some of the greatest joys? What's the fun part of being a denominational leader? Well, uh, when I was elected, I was sitting on the platform looking out over a sea of delegates, so about 4,000, and and I uh, I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, not audibly, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but just say, uh, uh, George, remember, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, or my, my yoke fits well. You've enjoyed everything else you've done in life and ministry. Enjoy this as well. Don't be a burden down, uh, sloop-shouldered, sad, depressed, general superintendent work carrying the weight of the world. Be joyful. And that was a good that was a good word for me, and and I've stuck with that. And what's brought me great joy? Uh, there's just a number of things. Um, I, I like to include people, and uh, we saw significant progress of inclusion uh, during the years I was both general secretary and general superintendent. Uh, the Summers God is now 42% ethnic minority, but ethnic minorities were not represented well in our general presbytery and in our executive presbytery. 
Uh, we have uh, 34% of the assembly's got in the U.S. is under the age of 25. They weren't represented in leadership roles on the General Presbytery or Executive Presbytery. We had a situation where, because of our uh, historic stance on divorce and remarriage, if a person had been divorced and remarried uh, prior to conversion or their previous spouse had uh, committed infidelity, we wouldn't credential them. Uh, and I just felt that was biblically wrong. And so we got that policy changed and hundreds of people who had been saved in our churches and called to ministry and had previously been turned away from uh, credential ministry were brought in. Um, we we mended a lot of uh, uh, racial bridges. Uh, I, I worked hard, especially with my fellow uh, Pentecostal denominational leaders to be inclusive. And, and one of the friendships that developed was with Dr. Charles Blake, who's the presiding bishop at the Church of God in Christ. And on top of all that, we had a vigorous church planting program that was developed. We, we in 10 years, uh, planted over 3,000 churches in the U.S., uh, developed a revitalization program that's um, now been involved at least 1,000 churches that have gone through, uh, gone through that program. And um, we uh, uh, did the some fundraising that was needed that outside of ordinary channels. And so we created a direct mail fundraising campaign called AG Trust, which brought in about $24 million that really helped us with our church planning and scholarshiping. I also had a vision to get young people into the lands of the Bible during their uh, preparation time for life and ministry. So we created the uh, Holy Land Center uh, and have had uh, literally uh, hundreds of of young people now engaged in in a, a three-week program in the summer and other times as well. So all of those things brought me a tremendous sense of satisfaction to see them develop and mature and really have impact for the kingdom. You know, I find it just interesting. When you talk about the tough part, you give a short answer. When you talk about the fun part and the good part and the accomplishments, you give a long answer. And I think that has been an amazing model for not just uh, AG pastors and leaders in churches, but for all of us across America. So that's a large part of why you are so much uh, loved and respected. So well, oh my let's, talk about, let's talk about uh, the Bible and leaders in the Bible. Uh, any particular ones that uh, you like or that you think about as examples, as mentors to you? You know, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but with your theological background, you'll appreciate this. But you know, Pentecostals are notorious for uh, finding a, a didactic uh, focus from narrative passages of the Bible. And for me, the three missionary journeys of Paul from Acts 13 to Acts 20 have provided some of the great enduring leadership lessons that I I lived with constantly. And so I, I would I, I would really identify that as having primary influence on me. Of course, Jesus being the primary influence, I, I, I've often taught on the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the attitudes that the, the Lord, before he sends us out to do anything, is far more concerned about who we are. So he gives us attitudes to be. And um, I, I actually uh, took some time to, instead of using the archaic religious language of the Beatitudes, uh, paraphrase them into uh, self-affirmations, uh, which uh, were eight in number. Uh, I need help. I'm, I am uh, sensitive. I'm strong, but easy to live with. I want to keep on growing. I care. 
my conscience is clear. Let me be your friend and I will rejoice even in my downtime. So those kind of um, character issues uh, that Jesus taught were criti- are obviously critical for us. But then in terms of decision making, I think the missionary journeys had a had a powerful impact upon me. Much of what you say and who you are transfers to leadership in the church or in uh, other venues as well. But the specific job of being a denominational leader, let's just uh, focus on that one more time. And tell me, what's it like to lead a denomination? Like, what do you do all day long? What's, what is the stuff that makes a denominational leader work? Well, it, it's, like, uh, it's like having a, a 10 pots on a three-burner stove. Um, there's just always something going on. E- either you're initiating something or meeting with staff or uh, checking up on how things are going or you're getting a phone call from the district superintendent or some issue has arisen somewhere. Uh, then, in addition to that, you have a very active uh, uh, speaking uh, ministry through, we have 67 district councils. I've probably hit almost all of them in my 10 years in terms of their annual conferences. We have, you know, I, I, I think probably on an average, uh, I, I spend 130 to 150 days a year on the road. Uh, most of that in speaking or in meetings of various kinds. Um, so it was just a continual um, rotisserie of events, people, um, dealing with issues, trying to move things forward. Um, I, don't, I don't really have a, I, I don't know that it's possible to even create a job description for it. I, I, it would just be too long. Well, one thing about you that is uh, unique, at least in the people that I know, is you're the only denominational leader that that I personally know who has a law degree. So how did that play into it? Not only you're getting the degree, but um, What's that helpful in terms of running a denomination? Well, I was pastoring in Southern California, and both of our kids uh, had left home to go to college. Uh, I'm kind of always, uh, I had wanted to go to law school, and I thought, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm 46 years of age. Uh, I think I can get this done in four years. There's a night school not far away. And uh, she said, fine with me if you want to do that. I, my plan was really that when I turned 65, I would retire from ministry and then uh, use my legal training to assist churches, little realizing that I was going to become general superintendent uh, at six, at the end of my 65th year. But during my years as general secretary and even in my 10 years as general superintendent, so 24-year period, uh, I, it was very helpful. My legal training was very helpful in two ways. One, it kept us out of a lot of trouble because um, I, I knew what to do to be proactive in preventing uh, legal harm. But secondly, uh, from time to time, we would be uh, uh, sued uh, and uh, I would be served up as the designated, I call myself the designated deponent. So here we go, you know, and uh and in those 24 years, we were never successfully sued. And uh, it was, uh, so it was very, very helpful. You know, you, you know this from your position that nonprofits used to have a status in this country of immunity from legal suits, but, but uh, that is not the case in recent years. Uh, and so to have a record over that we have never lost a, a suit uh, 
was, yeah, I think, a significant accomplishment for a major denomination such as ours. And I think my legal training helped with that. For some reason, I'm thinking, okay, now this guy's going to go to medical school, and after that, he's going to go into dentistry and sort of going to master all the <laughs> well, different professions. Well, I, I actually wanted to get a PhD in um, in, in uh, literature, but I figure my wife wasn't too happy about that. So what I'm doing now is I'm uh, I've I've had a, a, an idea in my mind for years of writing a novel. I've had the big idea, but I didn't know how to do it. Now I now I've taken the time, and I'm actually uh, working on it. It'll probably never get published because I'm not sure I'm a good novelist, but I've always wanted to do it. So uh, having a chance to be unburdened from the daily uh, responsibilities of administration has allowed my imagination to kick free a little bit. Well, John Grisham, he has a law degree and he's been successful as a novelist. So maybe you can. Yeah, but he's a good there. novelist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk again about uh, what happened during your tenure as General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God. During that time, the denomination grew a lot. And often when there's a movement like this, it's sort of bottom up and probably still is. But how did you inspire from the top down? You mentioned starting new churches, uh, uh, minority inclusion, some of these other things. How do you do that? How did you do that to inspire growth? Minority inclusion was a process, and it took uh, legislative action by our uh, governing bodies, including our very large biennial general council, where we have several thousand people voting. And, uh, you know, the, the argument in the beginning was we don't want to establish quotas. You know, that was back in the, what, uh, a few years ago. And my response was, we already have a quota. You must be white over 50. And... Um, and that's our quota. So everybody kind of laughed, but realized that was true. But it took it took a number of years uh, to do that. the uh, The church planning uh, really was right from the first months I became general superintendent. We bit the bullet and moved the church planning department out of being a department directly under the general superintendent's office. Uh, hired the right staff, funded it heavily, and uh, raised the money to help provide matching grants for new churches. Uh, and they developed a whole, the, the we call it the Church Multiplication Network, developed a whole training program that has really invigorated uh, church planning, trained millennials and the like uh, to do church planning. We, we also removed one of the tremendous roadblocks to church planning. We, we used to have an unwritten three-mile rule. You couldn't start a new church and you know, within three miles of another AG church. And we said, that's a, that's a crazy rule because we're not taking a notice of uh, the fact that people respond to different styles of worship, different ways of preaching, uh, different customs, et cetera. So uh, we, we, uh, we made it very easy for a parent church to start a new church. We, we had previously only had two kinds of churches in the Assemblies of God, what are called general council churches, which are self-governing, and district-affiliated churches, which are governed by the district. And we created a new category called parent-affiliated churches, where a lead church who wanted to plant a church could do that without anybody's approval, without the district's approval, without the national office's approval. They could just do it. And and it was a little messy, uh, you know, at times, because jurisdictionally people get a little bit bent out of shape. My answer to that was from, I think it's somewhere in the Proverbs where uh, King James, where there is no, 
where there is no ox in the stall, the stall is clean. And uh, a little bit of mess is going to happen if you try to do innovative stuff. But that was like pouring gasoline on the fire of church planning in the Assemblies of God when we adopted that a model of parent-affiliated church because we've now got uh, mega churches that before had been stymied from reaching out. Even churches that are smaller, two or three hundred, have planted other churches in smaller communities. So it's it was uh, removing that bylaw, uh, moving the written roadblock, and then creating the bylaw where you could do a parent-affiliated church was uh, a tremendous uh, green light for church planning in the Assemblies of God. All right. So as as a denomination, you mentioned earlier that there are things like mission and doctrine where everybody else agrees, but there's a lot of diversity of opinion. So as a general superintendent, you have often been called upon to speak with clarity and lead with clarity on issues where within the many churches, there are really differences of opinion. So how do you do this? How do you speak to issues when there's difference? And how do you keep quiet when you want to talk? Well, uh, you know, the, there are strong opinions, and my overriding concern when I address issues is that the church does not become politicized. There, there are people probably in every denomination, including ours, who feel that their political opinion is of equal value to their doctrinal affirmations, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but... Uh, I got all kinds of appeals to take uh, positions on issues. Um, one of the things I had to be sensitive about is that we've got a lot of missionaries around the world and anything that comes out of the national office uh, could trigger uh, difficulty for them. So uh, international political issues, uh, I just was mute on. Uh, there were issues I felt strongly about. Race of reconciliation was certainly uh, one of those issues. And um, from the days when I was a student at Fuller Seminary back in the 60s and marched uh, in a civil rights march back then, I've always, I've always believed uh, that the church should be doing more to advance racial reconciliation. And one of the, one of the things I did, and, and I just illustrate this to show that sometimes in a denomination there can be real polarity, uh, Bishop Blake, in December of 2014, after the Ferguson uh, outbreak and all that was happening, called me and said, uh, "George, uh, Church God in Christ, uh, which is our largest, which is the largest uh, Black Pentecostal denomination, said uh, I'm getting ready to call for a Black Lives Matter Sunday, the second Sunday of December. Would the Sons of God be willing to join us?" And I said, "Absolutely, sure." So I put out a uh, immediately then through our communication system asking our churches to participate in a Black Lives Matter Sunday to pray for uh, African-Americans in their communities and to hold them up because the African-American community at that point was under great stress. Well, um, I touched a nerve among uh, those who associated Black Lives Matter with uh, radical, revolutionary language, et cetera. And it was a huge backwash. But, I, but what, I, what the end result was is that there was a real, I think, advanced 
advance in the healing of the relationship with the Assemblies of God and the Church of God in Christ, which historically had started out together and then long story, but had been divided for decades. But also our churches that actually did what I asked had amazing services. One one pastor called me, he said it was one of the most amazing services I've ever been in. We had all of the black families in our in our church come to the platform and we we had our leadership all lay hands upon them and pray for them. And he said there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So sometimes you take positions that do polarize, but I always, I, I operated as a leader by the assumption, I'm not going to do what is political. I'm going to do what is right. And if I pay the consequences for it, I pay the consequences for it, but I've got to do what is biblically right. And so I felt uh, at ease doing that. And I still feel at ease, but I did the right thing even though it created, uh, you know, uh, a certain amount of stress. We live at a time when there are a lot of non-denominational churches, and while most churches in America are denominational churches, what's your argument, your best case for why we should have denominations and what denominations offer to churches and pastors and the culture at large? Well, the denominations offer resources. Uh, They offer accountability. Uh, for example, with our credential ministers, they must go through uh, preparation and examination. Uh, uh, but I think more importantly, uh, I compare uh, the, the association of churches banding together to local Christians banding together. And often when I'm uh, with a congregation explaining what the Assemblies of God is, I'll say, just as you have found that you cannot live the Christian life by yourself, you need others. And by banding together, you do the work of Jesus better in your community than you could do it if you were trying to be alone and a singular Christian. So it is with churches. When we band together, we better advance the work of the Lord. And the, of course, the primary support for this is just simply the empirical data of what's happened in, in the Assemblies of God. We, right from the get-go, when our churches were very small, said we're going to do missions globally at the same time we're doing it locally. And so they developed, uh, in the early days, a very strong missiology. Uh, today, that has resulted in a worldwide network of the Assemblies of God of over 370,000 churches and 68 million believers. That could not have happened by an individual independent church working by itself to advance world mission. There, there, there was a need for churches to band together to accomplish the mission of Jesus. And I, I think that's the that's the great asset of a denomination that it that it provides forward movement to make possible what could not be done by a singular church acting by itself alone. When you talk about 68 million believers around the world, that just gives a hint of your extensive contact with church leaders around the globe. So, as a final question, what can American evangelicals learn from? our brothers and sisters who live and minister in contexts that are very different from what we have in North America. I found it as I have talked with uh, uh, national general superintendents from around the world and all of our, all of our uh, countries where there is the sums of God presence are, they have their own indigenous leadership, elect their own leaders, self-governing, et cetera. But um, there are positive and, things to learn and there are negative things to learn. One of the things that has often hindered growth in some nations is the extensive legalism uh, of, that has been part of that church's DNA in that country. A legalism that 
kept them from really expanding their boundaries. Uh, fortunately, a lot of that now is dropping away, but there are still some vestiges of it here and there. On the positive side, uh, I see uh, examples of tremendous uh, faith, and uh, and I recognize also the, the principles of sowing and reaping, that, that growth in the kingdom has different stages. And uh, we have countries where there is explosive growth and countries where we are have we have the seedling national church. Uh, both of those are of equal value to God. And uh, by uh, by having uh, this wide spectrum of of the harvest of sowing and reaping, uh, we 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 see that uh, this the seedling churches look to the larger. Uh, bodies and say, well, if you, if God helped you to do that, we can do it too. And how did you do it? And so a pattern develops of mutual encouragement, support, and, and the like. And one of the remarkable things we're seeing now is that um, are the, the churches that the USA Assemblies of God established in, in other countries themselves now have their own missions departments. We have a hundred national churches now with their own missions department and the number of missionaries that they are sending are are more than double the ones that we are sending and many of these are third world countries that really can't afford to send many but they are penetrating pockets of the world where american missionaries cannot serve effectively so there is a tremendous um, value in that kind of partnership and uh, i think uh, we learn more and more that the more we partner together and share together, the the better the kingdom uh, grows and the better off the kingdom is. Our guest on today's conversation has been George O. Wood, chairman of the World Assemblies of God Fellowship. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to George. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.